last week. 43 million people, 43 million people, according to a recent estimate, are living with blindness in the world, physical blindness. Physical blindness, a combination of congenital blindness, nutritional de deterrent or lack of de nutritional blindness, uh, partial blindness. Uh, there, are, there are several types, but worldwide, there's expected to be 60 million blind people in one form or another by year 250. Blindness is a serious thing. Here's something I learned interesting that I thought in this research for this study, uh, this lesson on the man born blind. I looked at uh, Jesus' miracles, and I counted, I counted approximately eight men or groups of men slash women that Jesus cured of blindness. And here's how I got on this, this particular bet. And it's the, the man that was cured of blindness in John 9, he made a statement that I thought was very interesting because I wasn't aware that this was a fact or not, so I wanted to find out. He says in verse 32 of John chapter 9, since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. That's a New American Standard. Uh, anyone, there is never, and I'll read it again, since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. That kind of startled me. So I started looking at scriptures. I looked at Matthew, two men that were received light, a sight that were blind. I looked at the man in Bethsaida uh, in Mark 8, 22, where Jesus spat in his eyes and he received his sight. There was a person in, Mar in Matthew chapter 12 that was both demon-possessed, blind, and mute. What did you do to get that ticket? Uh, blind, mute, and demon-possessed. In Matthew 12, Jesus restored his sight, cast out the demon, and opened his mouth so he could talk. Uh, in Matthew, uh, I'm sorry, in Luke 18, there was a man was on his way to Jericho. He was blind. Jesus gave him his sight. Matthew 20, there were two blind men while Jesus was leaving Jericho. One of them was named Bartimaeus. That's where we get blind Bartimaeus. The Lord restored his sight. And in John 9, of course, Jesus made the clay by spitting on the ground and restored his sight. Here's a fun fact, one that you might not have considered. There was another man that Jesus restored his sight that was born blind that wasn't mentioned in the Gospels. Anybody want to guess? Since we don't have a one-word rap today, anybody want to guess who that person is that was blind and the Lord restored their sight? Jesus himself restored the sight, not one of the apostles. Anyone? I'll tell you. Apostle Paul. On the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, Paul was stricken with blindness. And the Lord restored his sight in Acts chapter 9 because Paul was made blind during his walk or his trek to Damascus, and the Lord restored his sight. And you'll find that in verses 3 through 18 in Acts chapter 9. But here's, that's not the most 
interesting thing I discovered in the prep for these lessons, which will conclude next Sunday on John 9 and the man born blind. The most interesting fact that I came across was none of the disciples, none of the prophets in the Old Testament, none of the patriarchs restored anyone that was blind. That, my friends, that particular miracle was reserved for Jesus alone. Now you say, why? I wonder why restored the blind people. You know, we know that Peter and John on the way to the temple in Acts chapter 3 says, Silver and gold have I none, but what I have thee, take up thy bed and walk, stand up. And, walk. and you know, so the, the, the apostles were able to perform by the help of the Holy Spirit many, many miracles, including the raising of the dead in the case of the guy that fell out the window during Paul's sermon. Hoping none of you will fall asleep during my sermon lest such a fate could happen, although you can't really fall out too far other than out of your seat. Uh, but, but please, don't, don't fall out of your seat. But this particular instance was a situation where Jesus and Jesus only heal the blind. And I think, I think, this is just my theory, I think the reason that Jesus healed the blind is because it was always a matter of showing healing of spiritual and physical blindness. And in this particular case, it was a contra it's, it was a sort of a play on words and a uh, a contrast and comparison of healing a man born blind physically and healing the same man born blind spiritually, just illustrate the fact that there is physical blindness, but greater than physical blindness and more detrimental than physical blindness is spiritual blindness. That's the remark that Jesus made to these guys in chapter 9, verse 41, when he said, if you had been born blind, you'd see. But the fact that you can see, you're blind, and you remain in your sins. What a, what a, uh, you know, what a play on words, what a contrast between physical and spiritual blindness. Only Jesus healed the blind, and I believe that only, it's, it's representative of only Jesus can turn darkness into light. Only Jesus can take a person from being completely lost to having sight. Only Jesus can take a person from death and destruction and fate of eternal doom to rescuing them to eternal life. Only Jesus. I was just amazed. Now, now that's not to say I won't, you know, don't quote me and say there was no other. You know, John in chapter 21 of John said all, if all the things that, that Jesus did and said were written, I would suppose that even the volumes of the, of the world couldn't contain the volume. So I know there's other stuff that's not documented in this book. I, I, I get that. I'm, I'm not being naive to that. I'm just pointing out of what we have in print, in the canon of Scripture, only Jesus healed blind people. And this particular blind miracle was particularly fascinating because of the elements at play, that is, the people that were against Jesus. Healing a man born blind. Let me tell you something. I, in, in, in my humble research, I think being born blind was almost worse than being a leper in that day because there was no cure for either. By the way, according to what I've read, there's no cure for leprosy today. It's called Hansen's disease. 
but there's still no bona fide cure. There's treatment for Hansen's disease, there's treatment for leprosy, but there is no absolute cure other than healing from God that can reverse leprosy. Blindness is, is kind of the same way. You can't, you, you can't replace, you can't do like a heart transplant or a kidney transplant with eyes because they're so complicated. I, I see why the whole science of autometry is so complex and why you have to specialize in that because of all the nerves, all the connections, all the, 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 the cells, all the, uh, the, the, the veins, the, the, the communication, the electronic communication between the eyes and the brain. It's so complex. There's so much information that's captured and interpreted in milliseconds, perhaps nanoseconds, that there's nothing like the eye. It just can't be replicated mechanically. As great as cameras are, as great as all types of devices for capturing images are, there's nothing that does the complexity and the speed. No artificial intelligence, I believe, will be able to replicate what an eye does. Boy, we had to be created by God. This just did not happen. This did not happen accidentally. And I don't want to bore you with all the details about the human eye, but it is a work of art in and of itself how God did that and how important it is and how the miracles of blindness was something that seemingly he reserved for himself. He basically said, hey, I'll deal with that. I'll handle that. I'll take care of restoring the sight. There were some groups of people that the Lord heals. I, I, I read that there was a, a group of, that, of, of people that God healed that weren't, the number wasn't listed in Matthew 15. And in Matthew 21, there was just a group of people that were part of healing, and these were blind people. But the reason I, I would put a blind person in a, in a lesser category than a leper, because a leper can beg, a leper can work, a leper can see, a leper can scavenge. Remember over here in Kings where the four lepers said, shall we sit here until we die? No, lepers can do stuff. You know, they have this, this insidious skin disease where the nerve endings are, are deadening and, and moving internally, but they can still move about. A blind person has no ability to move about without the aid of an assistant, a dog, or a stick. They can't work for the most part. There wasn't, to our knowledge, Braille. So the Lord, it, it's interesting to me because when I look at the text, it says the Lord saw him. In verse 1 of John 9, we get this information that says, And the Lord was passing by, and he saw the man. The man obviously couldn't see him. Isn't that representative of what happens today? We can't, see, we can't come to the Lord on our own. He has, to, he has to draw us. He has to draw us to him. He has to come to us. I know we sing the song, Come to Jesus. It's always Jesus coming to us. It's always Jesus coming to us. He always has to initiate the contact because we are incapable. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. 
I'm reading from the English Standard Version, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So unbelievers are unable to see the light. They're unable to come to the Lord on their own. We can't come on our own. We come because he draws us. He says that if I be lifted up in the earth, I'll draw all men unto me. So he does the drawing. He does the, the attracting. John 6, says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Amen. Why can't we come to the Lord on our own? Here's the reason why, everybody. We can't come because Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? So Jeremiah says, we on our own, guys, we're incapable of coming to God on our own. He has to come to us. We're like the blind man sitting by the road, helpless. No resources, no ability. God comes to us. He tugs at our hearts. He works in our spirit. He works in our minds. And he comes to us and he draws us. He rescues us from darkness to light. He does it. He initiates the contact. We are all products of grace. We are all products of unmerited, unwarranted, undeserving grace. He does it. That's why he's so worthy of our praise. That's why he's so worthy of our honor. Amen? Because he does so. We, we're just helpless without him. I love what Romans says. Chapter 3, Romans says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understand. No one seeks for God. This is what Paul is writing to the church at Rome. He says, no one seeks for God. No one seeks God. God seeks us. This blind man didn't start coming out saying, hey, Jesus, are you around? I'm not sure that he even knew who Jesus was. He certainly didn't know enough to tell the, the Jewish officials who Jesus was when they said, dude, who healed you? By the way, they asked him that question. That question was asked four different times by the Pharisees. How are you healed? How are you healed? How are you healed? And by the way, they were asking the wrong question. They should have been asking, who healed you? You know, if you, if you, if you, if you twist hop around, you can come up with the right answer. Had they just done a couple things like this, had they just quit saying how, and use the same four, three letters rather, they could have gotten who out of it. Of course, they don't speak English, they spoke Hebrew, I'm sorry, Greek, but they were asking the how question. They should have flipped the letters around and asked the who question, who healed you? Who is this man? We need to see him. Rather than interviewing the man that was healed, they should have been interviewing Jesus. They should have learned about him. Asking the wrong question, they were asking it to the wrong person, quite frankly. This man didn't really know who Jesus was. He had probably ostensibly one encounter with him. He said, I don't, I don't know. All I can tell you, dude, is that I was blind. <laughs> An hour ago, I was blind, and now I can see. I... I <laughs> You know, I'm, think, I'm thinking about this guy. I'm thinking about this guy. He gets interrogated by the Jews multiple times. He's interrogated by his families and friends. Wow, what happened to you? 
He's interrogated by all these people. I'm thinking, I don't know. Let's just say the guy is 25 years old. He's been blind for 25 years. And he's going through all these interrogations, this Spanish Inquisition, all these questions. And I can imagine him saying, guys, hold up, hold up, stop. I ain't seen nothing my whole life. I ain't seen no birds. I ain't seen no trees. I ain't seen no people. I haven't seen my parents. Can y'all just back off for a minute and let me go and enjoy life for a second before I get 20 questions? Can I drink a glass of water? Can I go smell a flower? Can I go see my family? I'll answer your question, but right now, I ain't been seeing much lately. I like to look around. He obviously didn't say that, but I can see his frustration building because the Pharisees kept asking him the same questions. How were you able to see? How are you now seeing? How are you not blind anymore? I'm just, I can imagine him saying, I'm just tired of answering these same questions. I want to go swimming. I want a steak dinner and I want to go to the park. Leave me alone. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, I'm almost done. Hang with me for a few minutes. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, 6 through 11, Romans 5, 6 through 11, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It's the NASB. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, when we were helpless, I think about the man paralyzed at the pool. He was paralyzed for 38 years. I think about the woman with the issue of blood. She had the issue of blood for 12 years. I think about the woman who was at the well, the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. She had been married five times and was in a relationship now that wasn't her husband. And the Lord just seems to seek out. He seems to be magnetically attracted to these people that are hurting, that are in pain, that are desperate, that have situations that they can't even express or share with anybody else. They cannot confide them. They have no listening ears. No one is sympathetic to their cause. And Jesus just seemingly searches and seeks these people out. I'm blown away by that. Don't you listen. If you're hurting right now, don't you think that your situation has gone unnoticed by the Lord? Don't you think for a moment that your pain is existing beneath the radar? Don't think that God is so busy over in South Africa and Argentina that he misses you here in Cleveland, in Houston, in St. Louis, in Toronto, wherever you are. God has not overlooked your problem. He is not unaware of what you're going through. Amen? He is aware. He knows all things. It hasn't been lost on him. Whatever you're suffering, whatever you're enduring, amen? Please believe that. Please believe that. We all represent the man at the pool that was paralyzed for 30 years. We all are represented by the man born blind. We're all represented by the woman with the issue of blood, by the woman by the well who had five bad marriages. That's all of us. All of us can find ourselves somewhere in Scripture, and the Lord 
is aware of us. Amen. You all really believe that? I pray. I pray. These, these lessons that, that we're sharing with you, they're about grace. They're about mercy. They're about compassion. They're, and I'm almost done, but listen to this. They're about the Lord showing us compassion and mercy and displaying grace on our behalf. And he's also training us. Watch this. He's training us to do the same thing to others. He's asking us to do the same thing for each other, to each other. We can be so short and so impatient. I'm guilty too. We can be so unwilling to let someone off the hook, so willing to throw them under the bus, so willing to castigate them, so willing to just condemn them for life and never let up when we all are in need of forgiveness. Amen? Cut the person some slack. That's become a pain in your neck. Cut off some slack. Really. <laughs> find the way. Find the way to forgive them. Find the way to let them off the hook, guys. Really. Let's come down off our high horses that we've never made a mistake and we're holier than thou. And let's find a way to show some grace some compassion, a second, third, fourth, fifth chance to somebody that just keeps getting on our nerves and keeps wrecking our lives. Find a way to let them go. Amen? Amen. Because we need that same level of forgiveness from the Lord. We need that. You need to release yourself, free yourself by letting them go. These, these, these disciples, and I'll talk about it more next Sunday, but these disciples kind of bug me with their whole approach to this guy. You know, this, this theological, philosophical approach, you know, who did what? Why are they this way? That's, that's to me, that's a, a veil, thinly veiled attempt to say, I'm better than he is. And we do that same thing at times, don't we? That we, we some sort of, sometimes we build ourselves up at somebody else's expense. Somebody else's is hurting, they're suffering, they're in pain. And we say, hmm, I wonder what they did. Wonder what brought this on them. I wonder why they're suffering. Let's not do that. Amen? Mm. Let's not do that. Let's not go there. The Monday morning moment is this. Boy, I've been trying to answer these questions. <laughs> Here's how I try to prep for my lessons. I look at the text, and I ask questions, and I question the text. I ask questions like how, why, who, what, when, where. I try to answer those six questions to my satisfaction the best I can. And when I've answered all those questions in the text, then I feel like I'm ready to talk about the text with you. I try to not anticipate your questions. I try to get clarity myself and answer these questions on my own. And one of the questions that I had in this, which we'll talk about another time, is an age-old question, why bad things happen to people, assuming, you know, assuming this guy was a so-called good person. I mean, he was born blind. He didn't do anything to necessarily bring that on himself 
Um, there were reasons where people were born blind, congenital reasons that would occur prenatally for mothers, especially mothers with venereal diseases. A person being born blind was commonplace in the first century and still in developing nations. Another thing I was thinking about is, you know, the disciples were, um, were coming along the road and they were asking, you know, why was this man born blind? I asked Marie this question the other day. How did they know he was born blind? You know, how did they know it wasn't an occupational hazard, that he was blind at work, blind because of some accident or some nutritional imbalance or chemical imbalance or, you know, some accident during his course of, of life? But the fact is, maybe there were some signs that would suggest that he was born blind. I thought another question that I thought was interesting to me in all of this is that why were the disciples asking Jesus this question instead of showing some compassion for the guy? Rather than asking why was he born blind, what, why not ask what can we do to help him? Lord, will you heal him? Can you bring about a miracle on his blindness? They had seen him do other stuff. Let's make sure that we're not in that situation where we're kind of looking down our nose and taking delight in someone else's misery because we're in a better place. Not cool. Not cool. Show compassion. Always show compassion. Always show Christ-likeness whenever we get the opportunity. The Monday morning moment is he didn't see and believe. The man heard and believed. I'll say it again. He didn't see and believe because he was blind physically. But he did hear Jesus and believe. Faith comes by what? Hearing. Hearing and hearing by the word of God. That Greek word there for hearing, we get our, it's, it's a kuo. There's different, different, depending on the tense that you look at it in the Greek dictionary. It's a kuo, A-C-O-U-O, which we get the root word for acoustics. And it's talking about not just hearing audibly, but it has a deeper meaning because it means hearing with discernment. It means hearing with understanding. Open the eyes of my understanding, the scripture says. It's hearing with a, with a willingness to obey, to comply, James 1.22. It's hearing meaning that I not only want to hear it, but I want to do it. It means I don't want to just hear it audibly. I want to apply it to my life. So he didn't see and believe. He heard and believe. He heard the instructions of the Lord, and he did it. And I'm going to, whoa, and I'm going to talk about that next Sunday as I judo chop the mic. I'm going to talk about what he actually did next Sunday. But I love what Jesus said in John 10, the very next chapter, and that it was, my sheep will hear my voice, and a stranger they will not follow. The Lord will call us. Also in John 10, 10, is that he comes that we might have life. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Destroy our lives. That's what the enemy tries to do. He's about wrecking us. He's doing nothing good. Starting with Genesis 3, when he came to Adam and Eve, it was about wrecking paradise. And he wrecked paradise. And we, he's been wrecking paradises ever since. But Jesus said, I come. You got to read part B of verse 10 of John 10. But I come. I come that you might have Zoe. You might have Zoe. Not just normal life. Not just surviving. But thriving. Abundant life. Overwhelming abundance. 
Now unto him, Paul wrote in Ephesians 3.20, now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundant. He could have just said abundant, but the Holy Spirit inspired him to add that adjective, that adverb, I think is describing a verb, exceeding abundantly. That's just abundant would have been enough. Lord, I accept your abundance. When you have an abundance of food at Thanksgiving, you have enough to give food to the neighbors or the friends. You can even break off a piece of turkey for your enemy. But when you have exceeding abundance, woo, man, that's serious. Amen. Exceeding abundantly above all we can ask or think. According to the power, that dunamis power, that Holy Spirit power that worketh in us. Lord, we just thank you for this word and for this time. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege to be able to share with you and each other this morning. We ask you, Lord, that these words, that they will touch whoever and however they're supposed to touch lives, and that we're better because of it, that something happens, something organically happens in us that that quickens our spirit, that changes our mind, that gives us a new idea, a different direction in some cases. Lord, we just ask that you change us, that you move about in us and stir us up, Lord. Scripture that says, rouse yourselves, rouse us, Lord. Get us, get us out of our doldrums, get us out of our apathy, Lord. Get us out of our state of indifference, Lord. Get us to a point of energy, spiritual energy, where we are on fire for you, Lord, where we are actively involved in advancing the kingdom for your sake, Lord, that we are about moving the needle and for your sake, that people will see your name. They will see you. They will see Christ in us and glorify you. Lord, may our lives be that, a light, that you might receive the glory. Lord, may you be glorified today in this service and beyond. And may your people be edified as we worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 amen.